Welcome to another episode of Electrify This, a podcast focused on the movement to electrify everything as a strategy to decarbonize and revitalize our economy. Each month, I connect with experts to explore the policy and market issues underpinning the shift to electrify transportation, buildings, and industry. I'm your host, Sarah Baldwin, Director of Electrification with Energy Innovation. Today's episode, Connecting the Dots, Cooking, Climate, and Clean Air. Across the U.S., we use gas in both residential and commercial sector to heat buildings and water, to cook, to dry clothes. It's also used in fireplaces and for outdoor lighting. In 2021, the residential sector accounted for about 15% of total U.S. gas consumption, and the commercial sector accounted for about 11% of total gas consumption. But despite its pervasiveness in our homes and buildings, as well as in the electric sector, Burning gas causes climate pollution and indoor air pollution, and it's harming our health and posing safety risks. As more studies are emerging highlighting these impacts, we're learning more about these problems and what we can all do to address them. Today, I'm joined by three experts, each with a very unique perspective and background on this topic. First, we have Dr. Curtis Nordgaard, who's a board-certified pediatrician with a diverse research background in basic and clinical science. He's part of a group called PSE Healthy Energy, which stands for Physicians, Scientists, and Engineers for Healthy Energy, uh, where he's doing research on natural gas and its implications for human health. The Boston University Superfund Research Program and Toxins Action Center granted him their Science for the Benefit of Environmental Health Award in recognition of his work and technical guidance for community organizations working on gas issues and air quality monitoring. He holds two Master of Science degrees in psychology and biology from the McMaster University and a medical degree from the University of Minnesota Medical School. Uh, He completed his residency training at the Boston University School of Medicine and Harvard Medical School. And in addition to his research, he still practices pediatrics and trains resident pediatricians at a community health center. So thank you for being with us today and welcome to the show, Dr. Nordgaard. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Next, we have Dr. Eric LaBelle, who's a senior scientist also at PSE Healthy Energy, where he does research on emissions of methane and health-damaging air pollutants, including those from abandoned oil and gas wells and residential appliances. He's worked to develop new methods for quantifying these emissions and has designed and executed research campaigns to systematically quantify emissions of methane and other pollutants throughout the state of California. He's authored several research studies on the topic, and he is a graduate from Stanford University with a PhD in environmental earth system science. Welcome to the show, Dr. LaBelle. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great to have you. And finally, but certainly not least, we have Chef Christopher Galarza, founder of Forward Dining Solutions, LLC. Chris is an entrepreneur, author, public speaker, and podcaster, and he's renowned for his work in the kitchen electrification space. He's one of the country's foremost experts in commercial electric kitchens, and he works with governments, manufacturers, brands, designers, and chefs to create lasting, sustainable kitchens and culinary ecosystems. Chef Galarza has worked for Carnegie Mellon University, Monterey Bay of Pittsburgh, and the Greenbrier of WV, where he apprenticed under several certified master chefs and culinary Olympians. Welcome to the show, Chef. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it is not often that you get to speak with a medical doctor, a research scientist, and a commercial chef all in one (laughs) sitting and have them have something in common. But uh, it's really exciting that you guys are all doing work in different facets of this space. And I'm really honored to have you here today to talk about this topic. It's one really near and dear to my heart. uh, And I, for my regular listeners, you know that I've had a gas stove for a long time in my house, and I finally... Got a new induction stove installed just a couple weeks ago. It was a bit of a process. Had to remove the gas stove from the kitchen. And as soon as we did, of course, there was a leak that I had to call the gas company to come and plug immediately because it was very dangerous. And uh, then eventually got the um, the pipe actually cut and capped in the basement. So it's out of my kitchen entirely. And I'm so thrilled and I'm loving cooking with induction stoves. Um, So excited to talk about this topic. I really want to delve first into some of this uh, emerging research you guys have been at the forefront of across the country. And we'll start first with you, Dr. Norgard. 
You are co-author with several other researchers on a study titled Home is Where the Pipeline Ends, Characterization of Volatile Organic Compounds Present in Natural Gas at the Point of the Residential End User. <laughs> Love that title. Uh, very fitting for a, Yeah, very fitting for a research study. Uh, but tell us more about this study and what you all found. Yeah, for this study, we used a, a validated technology or technique for measuring hazardous air pollutants. And that technique is primarily used for measuring those pollutants in outdoor air. But what we did that was unique is we adopted that methodology to measure hazardous air pollutants in natural gas samples that we collected from primarily people's kitchen stoves. And we did that around the greater Boston area and then sent those samples into commercial testing labs and had them analyze the gas samples. And what we found was pretty surprising. We found over 20 different hazardous air pollutants. And I use that designation because the EPA has decided those are harmful enough, they're well known to be harmful to human health that they deserve their own designation under the Clean Air Act. And we found over 20 of those in our different natural gas samples. Some of the ones of greatest concern are called the BTEX commonly, stands for benzene, toluene, ethylbenzene, and xylenes. Those are commonly found in fossil fuels like oil and gas. Um, and one of the things that's concerning about them is benzene in particular is a known cause of leukemia. So uh, we did that basic analysis. We also did another extended analysis to try and find all the volatile organic compounds in natural gas. And that list at times included up to over 200 unique compounds. So that was really the, the main point from our study. This had never been done before to our knowledge and nobody's published prior to this what's in the natural gas that's being delivered to our homes, into our kitchen stoves. And that's really where our lead author came up with that great headline, that title, Home is Where the Pipeline Ends, because it really, our stove is connected all the way from the point where gas comes up out of a well, all the way up to your stove. And we found a lot of those chemicals that we know come from gas as it leaves the wellhead are actually still there by the time it gets to your stove. So, yes, when I read that research and learned more about what you guys had discovered, I was totally shocked. I mean, we'd seen some things already about how gas stoves were not good for our health and obviously emitting bad things in our indoor air, but to know that there are qualified EPA toxins and many of them, uh, that's definitely very discomforting. Uh, what surprised you most about the results? Yeah, really, I think what surprised me most is what I said about the fact that we have some evidence that these hazardous pollutants are in natural gas once it comes up from the well. But, you know, gas undergoes some degree of processing. It travels thousands of miles and we can still measure those compounds and gas supplies coming into our homes. So that was a real surprise for me. The other thing that's really surprised me about this research is just the variety of ways that gas leaks. And some, of course, there is the study that we'll hear about from Dr. LaBelle, but even just hearing people's stories, the more you do this work and talk to people, the more you hear about natural gas leaks. You know, we talked about the leak that happened in your house when you switched out your gas stove. The last house that we moved into had a natural gas leak. One of the other study authors had a gas leak in her home. These are in the news all the time. And what we really haven't known about until this study came out is what's happening to the gas beyond its impact on the climate. Is there anything in that gas that might be relevant for our health? And it turns out that yes, in at least in the study, the samples that we collected in the Boston area, pretty much every one of those had some collection of compounds that really are harmful to your health. And so we think that wherever it's leaking, whether it's in the streets, inside homes, there's a real potential that this could be relevant for your health. Absolutely. And of course, you're a practicing pediatrician. You work with children who are highest risk for asthma and other respiratory illnesses associated with these toxins. So how does the, how does the result of these studies impact and influence your work as a, as a doctor? 
Yeah, you know, childhood asthma is one of the most common chronic illnesses among children. So as pediatricians, we're used to managing, diagnosing uh, asthma in children. And to some degree, we do think about environmental factors that could impact a child's asthma. So a really straightforward one is, is smoking indoors. Children who are exposed to indoor tobacco smoke, of course, that's terrible for asthma. But we also, as pediatricians, are used to thinking about other things that could trigger child's asthma, like dust, mold, mice and cockroaches. So what all of this research has really imposed on me as a practicing pediatrician is the importance of thinking about more broadly about indoor air quality and combustion in the living space. And, you know, I, I guess it'd be fair to say now with this research, I would think even more broadly about having natural gas in the home because if you're burning it in your stove, we know that produces a lot of pollutants in the home, especially if it's not well ventilated. But now what we're learning about uh, with these studies we're talking about today is even just having the stove in your home could be a source of these volatile organic compounds, could be leaking into your home on, a, on an ongoing basis. And we know that some of those compounds, again, those BTECs that I mentioned, have been associated with asthma in epidemiologic studies. So as a pediatrician, I really come back to what are the environmental factors that might be impacting this child's asthma and expanding that list now to include, do they have a gas stove in the home? That's really how I see this affecting my practice. Well, it makes a lot of sense, and I'm glad you and others are beginning to really focus on this as a, an underlying health condition likely to affect lots of folks, given how many gas stoves are in our homes. Um, so let me switch to you, uh, Dr. LaBelle. You've done similar research, though different, and you've got a couple of reports, one on methane and NOx emissions from gas stoves, cooktops, and ovens, and then one on uh, methane emissions and natural gas wa water heaters. Uh, would love for you to share the insights that you've gleaned from those different studies. Yeah, love to talk about them a little bit. So we started doing this project looking at methane emissions from gas appliances because back in 2015, there was a report that came out from Boston that showed that there were more methane emissions from the city as a whole when you looked at the entire city um, compared to if you were trying to add up all the individual known sources of methane emissions within the city. So it was perplexing because we were wondering what, what could be causing some of this gap. And one of the things that we thought that could be causing it was emissions post meters. So emissions from inside people's homes and buildings, emissions from appliances themselves. So that's what we, it was the start of this research that we, we undertook in, in California, looking at methane emissions from natural gas appliances. And we care about methane emissions from gas appliances because methane is such a strong greenhouse gas. It's 86 times stronger pound for pound than carbon dioxide over a 20-year life cycle. Um, and so what we really wanted to do was to make sure that we, we know how much gas is being emitted from, from appliances. So we did this on appliance levels. We did it from water heaters. We did it with, with stoves. With the water heaters, we looked at the difference in, in methane emissions from tankless and storage water heaters. And we found that tankless water heaters emit much more methane than storage water heaters. And particularly in the, the amounts or the periods in which they're turning on and off, there's a little puff of gas that comes out uh, every time that the appliance turns on and off. And with a tankless water heater, they turn on and off many times per day, usually several dozen times, because any time that you trigger the hot water in your house, the, the appliance is going to be triggered to, to turn on and off, whether it's whether you're taking a shower, running a dishwasher, or even just washing your hands with hot water, the water heater is going to turn on and off. And that's where most of the methane emissions come from, more than half that we found. Uh, with the storage water heaters, a lot of the emissions come from the period while they're off. Uh, more than 90% of them came from that amount of that period. And there's just this, this low level emission that's always happening. Um, we think it's from the pyolite in combustion and the storage water heaters that we measured. Um, nearly every storage water heater that we measured had a pyolite. Um, although there are storage water heaters nowadays that have electronic ignitions, they eliminate that, that pilot light aspect. So then we switched over into natural gas powered stoves inside. And we were surprised to find that 
even though the stoves that we measured, most of them did not have pilot lights. We did find a similar story in terms of the, the emissions. Uh, we found that three quarters of the emissions come from, from stoves come while they're off. And that was surprising to us to, to, to find that, um, which implies that, that many of these stoves have levels uh, or emission levels inside your house that are low enough that you won't be able to necessarily detect it with your nose um, because they're not reaching that explosive level. But there are and still, in fact, methane emissions inside your house due to having a gas stove there. We don't know whether it's coming from the pipes or some, you know, the connection between the, the pipe and the stove or whether or not it's coming from within the stove itself. Um, we, we measured these, these, uh, stoves in actual people's houses and didn't want to take their stove apart to try and figure that out. <laughs> um, but, uh, that maybe in the lab one day we can go up and try and take a wrench to a stove and, and see what's going on inside, see what's, where, what's causing these emissions. But yeah, this has a, a significant um, uh, impact on the carbon impact of these appliances. For the stoves in, in particular, what we found is that the total amount of emissions, methane emissions from the stoves, increases the climate impact of gas stoves by about 39% compared to if, if you were to negate the methane component altogether and just say that we're going to count the carbon dioxide impact of the gas stoves. Um, so that's, that's a big deal. Um, and that's, it's a source of methane emissions that we haven't really, really thought much about before. Um, and it adds to the, the discussion. Like if, if you want to talk about, you know, your climate impact of your gas stoves, it's, we don't want to talk about just the carbon dioxide emissions. We also want to talk about the methane emissions as well, because that's, it's, it is, it is not, it's not, it's not zero. Let's just say that, especially if you consider the, the strong greenhouse gas impact of, of methane emissions. Which I believe is 85 times greater than that of CO2, correct? Yeah, 80, 86 or 84 86. to 86. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's somewhere in that range over, over a 20-year life, li- lifespan. This is significant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, shocking. And saying nothing of the upstream methane emissions that we know are part of the gas system at the, the oil well, the gas well. And the, and the pipeline distribution system. Um, you've done a bit of research on that as well. Go ahead and uh, share any insights from that perspective. Yeah, so we, we talked earlier about, you know, home is where the pipeline ends. That's the title of, of the other study that, that we're talking about today. And, and that's really true with the methane emissions too, right? We think that, you know, the, the natural gas distribution, production, this all exists in part to supply gas to your gas stove in your house and all the other gas appliances. So we're only measuring in our work the, the methane emissions at the site of the appliance, but there's, we, we know for sure that there's other leaks upstream of, of your house, you know, within city distribution infrastructure and upstream gas, midstream gas. There's, there's, there's many documented leaks. Um, and that all, is uh, also a factor in in the total amount of methane emissions in terms of the the, the impact of of having of piping methane gas, um, you know, to your gas stove and producing it. Um, so yeah, I think that there's there's definitely that it's something that needs to be also needs to be thought about too when talking about the climate impact of gas stoves. It's not just the methane at the site of the appliance, but also in part the emissions upstream of that as well. Right. And so, Eric and Curtis, the work you guys are doing and all of this research, are you seeing it already having an impact or is it still so new that it needs to be more socialized and folks need to get the education on it? Yeah, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I started out working with people on natural gas issues around Boston over five years ago now, maybe more like seven. and very few people understood that their stove had any role to play in these issues. Uh, People understood pipelines are big, power plant, gas power plants, those are big deals. But nobody wanted to look at their stove and people wanted to stay attached to cooking with their, love cooking with their gas stove. And and they kind of just, uh, it's not a big deal. And that's really changed a lot. I'm starting to see more and more people I know in the community around here who have become aware of the issues and and a lot of it is the now as we're learning a lot more about how much these appliances are leaking. And then on top of that, 
when they do leak, what might be coming along with the methane leaking into the home. So I think it's it's having a huge impact just in what I see around me, but also um, within the world of, of medicine. Massachusetts Medical Society, which is equivalent to the state version of the American Medical Association, passed a resolution that recognized the potential health risks of using gas in the home. And this summer, the American Medical Association passed a resolution or their their caucus recommended the adoption of a resolution that acknowledges the health risks, in particular, the risk to children with asthma of having natural gas in the home. And the American Medical Association is, of course, a large organization and it serves a number of purposes, but you wouldn't consider them to be a fringe organization pushing some secret agenda. This is a mainstream physician organization that has now recognized how important this problem is. So I think there's really been a lot of progress. Yeah, that's great. How about you, Eric? Yeah, I would say when we... um it was very interesting to see, to see the the the, uh, the media reaction to each of our studies. I think that with with the water heaters in particular, uh, we actually found that there was a higher percentage of, or, or sorry, more gas in total was more methane gas in total was emitted from the water heaters than from gas stoves. But people were are much more attached to their gas stoves, and we also had a component in our paper about post combustion. Um, NO2 and, and uh, other NOx uh, emissions from, from the stove post-combustion in our, in, in our paper from the gas stoves. And I think that that um, also was, was uh, a, a selling point for, for people to, to be concerned about this, that you know, with water heaters, furnaces, other gas appliances, most of them are either outside already in your garage. They have a permanent vent on them that, that's always vents the gas outside. That's not necessarily the case with your gas stove. It's in your kitchen. Um, if you have a vent, it may recirculate the air back into your kitchen rather than blowing it outside. And even if it does blow outside, it's not necessarily hundred percent effective. And most people don't even turn it on, even if they do have one, um, citing reasons of it being too loud or not thinking they need it or forgetting to. Um, so I think that that's, that the, the post-combustion, um, discussion of what else is coming is being produced when you burn a fossil fuel inside your house is really important. Um, we measured NO2 and other uh, NOx, you know, NO, NO2, NOx in our, in our paper. And I think that there's, there's definitely room for, for talking about other, other post-combustion uh, pollutants inside, inside your house as well. Um, there's been some, some work on it already, but more needs to be done, particularly looking at like carbon monoxide, formaldehyde and other VOCs. Um, yeah, and I think that's, that's definitely another compelling argument to, to getting people interested in, and not just the climate impacts of gas stoves, but also how switching out your gas stove for, for something else can also have a dramatic impact on improving your indoor air quality. Yeah. If I could jump in real quick, I, one of the things that we've noted that, uh, we cite a lot in Dr. LaBelle, your study is something I cite pretty often. So big fan, glad you're here. Um, is the fact that, you know, those other VOCs you talked about, sulfur dioxide, formaldehyde, other PM 2.5, which we know is bad. Dr. Norgard, I'm sure you can speak to it more than I can, but I know that um, childhood rates of asthma is a $50 billion a year health cost for American families. So if we can begin to look at the indoor air quality, which by the way, there is no regulation on. The outdoor regulations dictate that anything beyond nine parts per million of carbon monoxide needs to be stopped until they can figure out where the contamination is coming from. When you cook with your natural gas, your indoor space can far exceed 200 parts per million of carbon monoxide. All those things contribute. So if we can clean up the air in the schools and clean up the air in the home, the theory, because environmental factors are the chief factor of, of childhood rates of asthma, you would start to see that cost come down for American families. So it's not just about like, hey, this is healthier, pat on our back. It's also, it's going to over time alleviate these costs for American families. And that's pivotal. Yeah, absolutely. So Chef, talk a little bit more about the work you're doing with the commercial kitchens and the electrification movement that you're uh, spearheading there, because it definitely is a, a vanguard space. 
yeah, it's a pretty unique space I find myself in for sure. Uh, I, 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 as far as I know, I'm the only commercial chef speaking about this. There are other residential chefs. I'd love to shout them out. Rochelle Boucher, Drew Schultz, uh, Andrew Forline. They're all fantastic people. And, the, and there's, and, and there's more there. Uh, but the commercial space is something that a lot of folks kind of don't touch. Even as these politicians are passing these regulations, which as of today, I think there's 80 cities and jurisdictions across the United States that have passed electrification ordinances, the overwhelming majority of them being excluding the commercial kitchen, which I think is irresponsible, uh, especially if we're talking, say, San Francisco, 77% of San Francisco's pollution comes from buildings. We know that the inclusion of a commercial kitchen increases that pollution of the building uh, tenfold. So kitchens are should be central to the discussion about eliminating these uh, these these emissions. So uh, we try to point that out. We try to educate folks because education is the biggest thing lacking at the moment, and we try to under, uh, help people understand, chefs included, that. The kitchen should be the central hub of how we begin to clean our cities. Right now, New York City has a goal to be uh, carbon neutral by 2050. As as things are going right now, if they don't change and they keep doing what they're doing with the local 97 and 154, they're going to be uh, at 80% by 2050 which is 20% shy of their goal. So they need, they need to be more aggressive. Uh, around the country, it needs to be a little bit more aggressive. So we're hoping to get that through people. Ithaca's done a wonderful job, and I want to shout out uh, Dr. Luis Torres for doing that. But yeah, yeah, 100%. And, you know, you I think you bring up a really important point, which is, you know, it's, it's as a pediatrician, I really identify with childhood asthma. That's in my wheelhouse. I care a lot about that. But at PSC, we are looking at or, or we're discussing other uh, populations of concern, and that includes occupational exposures. And the two that we've talked about so far, number one, when we've, based on the Boston Kitchen Study and looking at what's in natural gas, the occupational exposure we're really concerned about are the pipeline workers who are fixing natural gas leaks. They're digging trenches, they're down in trenches, the gas is leaking, they're breathing in considerable quantities of these pollutants. So that's mm -hmm. number one concern. And number two, as we've been talking about with the post-combustion products, is the commercial kitchens. Uh, the right. lead author, Drew McCannowitz, he's really talked a lot about that. And, you know, we're really thinking about what are the exposures there you have. I mean, the you know much better than I do the BTUs of these commercial burners. Oh, I mean, yeah. the, the amount of combustion products coming off of those has, has got to be really more substantial than even your home stove. Oh yeah. By, yeah. So the home stove, I think it's what, 15 to 20,000 BTUs. The commercial range, we're talking about 30 or so thousand. When you go into walks, we're talking a hundred thousand. So, and if you've ever seen, uh, yeah, right. Dr. Norgard is shaking his head. He's shocked. He had no <laughs> idea. So if you really look at uh, a stove and I'm sure you all have, have you ever seen the orange flame? Right, you're all shaking your head. Yes, uh, that's bad. That means that there's a lot of unburned natural gas in there. It mm -hmm. should be blue. So mm -hmm. that's an, that, that's an indication that these stoves are not being serviced properly. They're not being recalibrated mm -hmm. properly, and which means that you're losing money. So that thirty-five thousand BTU range, or that sorry, that thirty thousand BTU range is probably operating. Because that 30,000 number comes from the lab. So they're operating under strict, you know, ASTM guidelines. But if we were to take it into the commercial kitchen, you'd see chefs stack up saute pans and turn the burner on high. Just they would leave it on because it's so inefficient to get hot that they have to preheat their pans constantly. It's just a, mm -hmm. one, of, one of the myths that we, uh, that we bust pretty often. Uh, we also see chefs uh, have empty pans on, on all the burners and they're on. So they're just wasting it. So for every dollar you're spending, because it's about 35% efficient. For, so for every, and again, that's at the lab. Uh, truth be told, it's probably in the teens, low 20s, but we're going to say 35% efficient. For every dollar you're spending on, on your natural gas, you're throwing 65 cents of it out. And where's that going? That's going into your lungs. That's going out into the exhaust. That's actually going to warm up your kitchen, which means now your air conditioner is working even harder. So now your building is actually polluting even more because you have a gas kitchen. Uh, when the flip side, 
with electrification, you're seeing 90 plus percent efficient with, with, with induction. So for every dollar you spend on electricity, you're probably losing seven to 10 cents. Mm-hmm. Big difference there. Uh, now your now your kitchen's cooler, so your staff is more relaxed. Your building's not working as hard to replenish that heat. All these things factor in. And if you have demand control ventilation, then you know that it's only turning on and off whenever whenever your kitchen's in use. So further savings there. We find that that electric kitchens are far more profitable and are f- uh, than uh, than gas kitchens, despite the fact that folks seem to have this in their head that. Gas is far cheaper than than electricity, despite the fact that this year alone it's already gone up forty percent in cost. So and it's and it's it, by twenty thirty it's expecting to go far beyond that. So the cost of electricity is steady. The cost of gas is is fluctuating crazy. And it's going up and up and up because of all these leaks, because of their infrastructure problems, because of the fact that they're passing that cost on to us. Now that's not to to you know to kind of dunk on the uh, the gas industry because we still need them for a grid at the moment, right? Which is another thing that I hear from chefs is why even bother going to electric and getting rid of gas if we still use gas to power that electricity? And I'd simply tell them that gas range is 35% efficient. That same gas can be used at 85 plus percent efficiency at the grid level. So as a conservative, shouldn't you want to conserve our natural resources because that is the root word of conservatism, and say, okay, well, we have in America, if we want to be energy independent, we should conserve the the resources we have and take advantage of the free things like sunlight, water, wind. So that's uh, there's so much that goes on to it. We can we can make a ten hour podcast if you want. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, kitchens need to be the central conversation. Um, for all these cities, all these mayors, all these politicians who are looking to really make a splash out there because uh, until recently, the federal government has not participated in this at all. Right. It's beautiful to see how cities and states have figured out that we they can make changes on their own, which is why we have 80 cities and jurisdictions, which affect 28 million people. So that's a potential $34 billion in health savings. And this is all on the RMI website. So... It's more like throwing a pebble into a body of water. The ripple effects are far more than people think. People Mm -hmm. initially think, oh, by electrifying my kitchen, it's changing how I cook. I don't like that. They don't realize how far it goes. And in fact, you don't have to change how you cook. Um, Yeah, so many great points there. And we would be remiss if we didn't point out that the Senate just passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which does include, for the first time ever, incentives for... Uh, mostly residential electrification and some multifamily as well. Um, I'll post a link to the show notes for folks who want to get more details, but there is an incentive there for induction stoves or electric stoves as well as heat pumps and heat pump water heaters. So um, to date, federal government has been totally absent, but we are hopefully going to see that tide change quickly as uh, hopefully that law will be... um, enacted here soon. Hopefully in the week. Yeah. Um, so I want to kind of surface a little, there's, there's so many aspects of this, but of course one of them is this uh, kind of policy piece. And I'm curious, um, Eric, if you want to jump in on this, are you guys at PSE Healthy Energy working to get your research in front of policymakers and regulators? And and if so, how is that being received? Yeah, so we're a nonprofit research institute that studies energy, environment, and public health. And one of our, our missions is to put our research in front of policymakers. Um, and that takes the form, or there's many, many ways in order to do that. And, and so one of that is to do 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 briefings and uh uh talk about this, this, these two studies and, uh, and, and, uh, put it in front of a, a, a congressional panel. That's great. Um, so mostly focusing on federal. Uh, yeah, so that would be federal. There's also, we're also very interested in talking to California legislation, but, or California policymakers. Um, we have a, a study that we're working on right now, uh, also looking at the composition of California natural gas. So that's very California centric where, where we're from. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we've ta- we've taken gas samples across the state of California, and uh, hopefully, we'll have that that published in the in the near future. 
Great. Well, and California is, I believe, number two in the country in terms of overall gas consumption just after Texas. So there's a ton of opportunity to make an impact in California. Mm -hmm. I do also want to also point out that in California, you guys have the worst air quality in the nation. That's not and that's not your fault. That's because of all the wildfires. So it's more so it's even more imperative that we really focus on indoor air quality, which is why again electrification is key there. Yeah, absolutely. When when the fires are burning, people go inside, shut the windows, shut the doors, they seal off all the entries, and so it's even more concentrated. Um, if you if you're burning stuff inside, <laughs> um, so use your ventilation, people. Yes, exactly. Or get one if, in the case of my home, you didn't have one. Um, are any of you guys involved in any of the or monitoring any of the code discussions that are happening? And Chris, you've mentioned these local governments that have adopted electrification ordinances. That's where a lot of this movement is happening. Um, but I'm curious if the work you're doing is being translated in those conversations because that's a really huge opportunity. That's a that's a great question. In fact, uh, on our show we had um, Misty Bruseri, who's one who writes policy reach codes for California, and she has told me that there are folks that are working on it in Massachusetts, and say like actually, rumor has it, and I can't confirm this, but she has, but she can't tell me where she got it from. That's neither here nor nor there, but Detroit is also working on this as well. So the Motor City, symbolically, is a huge, it's a huge win if they were to make this. But that's something that that, uh, that they're working on. Eugene, Oregon, as a, as a couple of weeks ago, just also passed their own thing. So reach codes are important, and why they're so important is because cities revise their reach codes far more often than the states. I think states is like every five years where reach codes in the local buildings, uh, local cities and towns are like every two years. So you're able to make changes a lot quicker on the local level than you can in the macro, like the state or, or the federal level. So there, so reach codes are, are imperative. And there are folks who are reaching out to us to ask us about questions about the kitchen, whether or not they should include kitchens. And we, you know, we do, we do our best to educate them. That's great. Um, Dr. Norgard, does your, work directly reach policymakers, regulators, local, state, or federal? So I am aware of the work that's being done on revising building codes here in Massachusetts. Uh, unfortunately, myself, I haven't been directly involved with that work. Um, and we do have a little bit of an arcane uh, arrangement here where changes to the building code have to be uh, is either approved or, or, or worked through at the state level. So we have a number of municipalities that want to enact bans on fossil fuels and new construction. And those, uh, the first one of those in Brooklyn, Massachusetts was deemed uh, to have run afoul of, of, of these uh, technicalities and could not be enacted. And there is a bill, a large climate bill sitting on the governor's desk right now, awaiting his signature that would enable 10 municipalities, if they met other criteria, including uh, providing adequate affordable housing, that they would be able to enact those stretch codes that would include and then and bans on false fuels. So uh, that is definitely uh, really on the forefront. I mean, he's within days of either signing it or having it uh, pass into oblivion until the next legislative session. So it's it's happening. It's on the forefront right now. It just is not something I've been personally involved with. And because this study is relatively new in that whole process, it wasn't able to get into that legislative effort. But people here are aware of these studies. And I think that's going to be more and more a part of the discussion moving forward. Yeah, it is relatively new. So plenty of opportunity now to really spread the word. One of the reasons I wanted to have you all on the show. Um, Chris, I want to I want to turn back to you just with respect to the work you are doing with chefs. And if you could maybe just share a little bit about the chefs you've worked with that have kind of had the aha moment from, you know, really devoted to gas and now considering or actively working with induction cooking. What's that experience been like? Um, it's, well, working with chefs is always challenging, right? We are, we are, uh, 
a hard-headed tribe, but uh, but I love it. I love it uh, because I know that we're making a difference. The hospitality industry is an industry that obviously I love. You know, it's given me a lot uh, from where I came from to where I am today. Uh, I can attribute that directly to being a chef, and uh, that wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for the, for the industry. So to me, it's super important that we take the time to educate the chefs, hospitality industry, veterans. Um, the American Culinary Federation, as many people as possible to understand that we can make a difference. Um, now, when working with chefs, it can be challenging because there's a lot of myths, we'll call them, um, or excuses, but myths <laughs> uh, that really are pervasive out there. Like the fact that people think you can't saute without, you know, you can't do dry cooking on induction I just heard that recently from a client or that, you know, the glass is going to shatter because, you know, chefs were big and strong, uh, whatever the case is that just uh, have to sit there and systematically break these things down and help them understand that that's not true. And in fact, there is cooking. I have to kind of remind them of this, but cooking really truly is about fundamentals and, te and technique, right? So a braise will be a braise, whether it's on a campfire an induction range in an oven, it's not going to change, right? So we have to remind them of this and help them understand that precision is a chef's best friend. And when you can cook precisely to the degree that you want, you can do so much more. If you look at baking, a lot of the recipes are to the degree, you know, you measure to the gram, you cook to the Celsius, all these things. Uh, but in the savory world, it's kind of just, you do your thing. But if we want but if you look at the highest levels of cuisine, like the Thomas Keller's, the Noma, the Culinary Olympics, places like that, you see that they also cook with highly precision. So they're saying, you know, cut this to this gram, cut this to this size, to tournay this size. And it's all about being precise. So everything cooks at the exact same time. It doesn't matter if you go to the restaurant on a Monday or a Friday, it's going to be the exact same meal. Right. So in doing that we kind of start to change them and help them understand that the only limitations is what they're putting on themselves. Your fuel has nothing to do with your cooking prowess, your, your, how good you are. We just are trying to give you more, uh, more to your arsenal. So, and in fact, I uh, help them understand that every international culinary competition in the world is all electric. Cause one of the myths that we hear all the time is, can you actually produce quality without fire? Uh, in fact, they do it at the highest levels. So the That's master it. chefs, uh, actually Noma that I just mentioned, number one restaurant in the world, all electric, they cook on induction. So the idea that you can't produce quality is just nonsense. And it's a, oftentimes folks who've never had experience with it. Oftentimes they don't even know how it works. So we we kind of just say, hey, we get it. Uh, we're a chef-owned company, small minority-owned business, and we were also against it at first. When, whenever my client at Chatham was like, "Hey, we need to make this switch," I was like, Shh, "Do we actually have to?" And then they, but my client wanted it, and we did it, and it blew me away. I was, mm -hmm. I was changed from there on out, and uh, I loved it. But you talked about, um, you know, some of the clients I've worked with. Uh, Microsoft is the best. Is the, is the best example because their chefs were adamantly against it. They were like, no, 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 no. We came on, we helped them understand why it's so, it's so great. Uh, we helped them understand whatever they have questions about. There are answers out there, whether it be walk cooking, all these things. Um, and now they love it. They just opened up this year, actually. They're all electric uh, headquarters in Redmond, Washington. I think there were, I think I saw numbers of like 44,000 people they're serving a day or something crazy or a week. I forget, I forget what it is. Um, but they're, they're doing it at the biggest possible scale. They're doing it. So they're showing not only is this possible, but you can excel at it. That's cool. I did not know Microsoft employed so many chefs. <laughs> Microsoft, Google's all that they have all, all all electric campuses. Uh right. Adobe. I mean, the list goes on and on. Yeah, very cool. You know, I, I just have to say, I I'm really loving this combination of of guests that you have here because when we are doing this research and pointing out these problems, if you just had us on here, it would just kind of spiraling down into this negativity about how bad this stuff is. But having you here as a professional chef talking about the positives, it's so great to hear that because we have solutions. We have alternatives. We have 
great options out there. We don't have to stick to the, the technology of the 20th century. That's actually, I'm glad you said that. I tell people that all the time. What we offer as a firm, as a company, is something most folks can't because we have lived experience. So we, we, we often say uh, we offer 21st century solutions to 21st century problems. Gas was our solution in the early 1900s to get away from coal. It was the cleaner alternative. It, it was able to keep your kitchen cooler. You didn't have to employ people to just keep stoking the flames and you know making sure that the, that, that the coal was still burning. The cleaning was easier. And now, 100 years later, we're talking about electrification going to make your kitchen cooler. It's going to make it more efficient. It's going to make it cleaner. It's going to be easier to clean. All these things that they said 100 years ago, we're saying now. And all, the, and all the things that the that the folks who were on the coal side are saying, natural gas uh, chefs are saying now. Mm-hmm. So we really haven't changed as a species. But the fact is, like you said, there are solutions out there. We're not just here to point out the problems. We're here to say, you know, we can just sit here and talk about the negatives till we're blue in the face. But what are the solutions? The solutions are here. And in fact, there are things beyond that I wish we would get to. But ultimately, we're having a discussion about how we're getting a piece of metal hot. Uh, and it's kind of ridiculous because there's things out there like radio wave cooking. So if you, have you guys ever heard of this? Prepare to have your mind blown. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have so, to do another episode on radio wave cooking. It's, it's wild. So it's like uh, I've seen demos where they have a, a red snapper encased in a block of ice. They're able to cook the snapper without ever melting the ice. Wow. So imagine that technology in the, in the hands of a chef. Imagine, you know, you get a, an, an ice cream cone, for instance, you bite into it and there's a molten chocolate core, right? All, like there's so much we can do, but we're, but we're bogged down with, I don't know, do I want to get this metal hot with flame that's going to be slower or induction is going to be faster? Mm-hmm. It's just such a, a, a caveman way of thinking about it. Well, I want to round out our great conversation with a final question for each of you to respond to. And that is, what would you like the average person who's listening to keep in mind when they're making decisions related to their homes and kitchens in light of everything that we've discussed today? And Eric, I'll start with you. Yeah, I would say that the one thing I'd like people to remember is that your your decision about what type of gas or what type of stove to have, if you have a gas stove in your house, um, that there there are both climate and health impacts both together in the gas stove. We've seen that for for with our research, you know that there's there's methane emissions from gas stoves, uh, there's post combustion byproducts from gas stoves. That both of these will harm the climate and your health and and deteriorate indoor air quality. So so that's like a making the decision to switch from gas to electric is 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 a there's a pretty compelling case for both the climate and and your health. And I think that that's, that's something to, to really think about that. It's not, it's not just one or the other, but it's both simultaneously. Absolutely. A twofer. How about you, Dr. Norgard? Yeah. Besides that excellent point, I think I would add that people don't have to feel powerless when we talk about those very important issues about how burning fossil fuels in your home affects health and climate First of all, replacing appliances, as I think a lot of us realize, is a little bit of a long-term project for, for most people. And so, you know, become informed, learn about issues like we've talked about today, and start making a plan, whether it's a furnace, stove, anything else that hot water heater, start planning ahead, call HVAC specialists, start looking at your budget and preparing as soon as you're able to, or when that appliance breaks down, be ready to make that switch out. And slowly over time, you're going to really make a big difference for your home. And the other part of this that we didn't quite get to, but this comes up a lot is you don't have to feel like it's going to take switching out a stove for you to have make a difference in your home. You know, I mean, we did touch on ventilation. That's, that's super important. You can do that immediately if you have a properly vented stove or even for renters, cracking a window open getting uh, an affordable, like an Ikea under $100 induction cooktop on your stove to do at least some of like you're just boiling water, you know, cutting down on the amount of gas that you're burning in your kitchen. There's a lot of steps you can take. Absolutely. And I, I have long touted the kind of the interim phase that I didn't have 
the induction stove. I used the two burner cooktop induction and it was great because I didn't want to use gas anymore. And so that was a good little interim solution. Very affordable. Um, Chef Galerza, how about you? Oh man, uh, I guess I would have message for both the residential and, sh- uh, and the commercial chefs. For the, sh- for the commercial chef, um, I would say there's not, I've never seen a solution like induction cooking, for instance, that can do so much. It can reduce the temperature of your kitchen. It could increase productivity with your staff. It can decrease cleaning time. It could decrease how much you're spending on chemical costs and all these things. Ultimately, you get more out of your staff with less uh, to the tune of uh, an induction range can cook 70.9 pounds of food per hour as opposed to 38.6 pounds of food per hour. So you can get in an industry right now where we're struggling to find staff. That's key. So there's that piece. For the residential chefs, um, we're seeing for the first time ever, what we're going to see is the residential chefs influencing the commercial chefs because chefs are going to be resistant to this change until, and I can talk to them blue in the face, but until they go to one of your houses and they actually cook on your induction range and go, holy crap, this is so much cooler than I thought. They're not, until they get their hands on it, they're not going to want to make this switch voluntarily. So you guys have a lot of power on top of the fact that you're going to be able to keep your family safer. Uh, You know, we talked about how the emissions coming off of gas, uh, this is going to be important for the elderly in your home, the children in your home. Uh, if you have, uh, if you're a survivor of COVID nineteen, which those who had uh, the severe cases had severely severely diminished lung capacities. No more are the fear of your kid putting their hand on the stove and burning themselves. There's nothing hot except for the pan itself. So this is like honestly the single biggest change you can make to be able to actually make a difference. And it's not going to take a lot. Uh, You're not alone. And you can be the change that we want to see in this world. So help us do this. Uh, We're only going to make this country stronger. We're only going to make these um, our health better. And ultimately, we need that. So thank you for being a part of the solution. And welcome. (laughs) Awesome. Great inspiration. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for being with me today. It's been a pleasure. I've learned a lot and um, continually uh, inspired to work with so many great folks out there in the world doing this work. So thank you for what you do. And thanks for being with me today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Real pleasure to join you all today. Thanks. Thank you, Sarah. We appreciate it. Great. Well, Electrify This is an Energy Innovation original podcast. Energy Innovation is a nonpartisan energy policy firm delivering high-quality research and analysis to help policymakers and regulators pursue a decarbonized energy future. You can find more information about Energy Innovation and this podcast at energyinnovation.org forward slash electrify this. Continue to subscribe, follow, and give us a five-star review if you like what you're hearing. And of course, tag us on social with hashtag electrify this. Thanks as always to our sound engineer, Rowan Stigner, and the audio in in Salt Lake City. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Sarah Baldwin, and you're plugged in to electrify this. Electrify this.